everybody who comes into the business you know, genuinely has a desire to want to see the person next to them do well. And harnessing that and creating that for me starts with the management team having and treating everybody with respect. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby. I'm delighted to be joined today by Mark Brown. Mark is the co-founder and director of Worldwide Recruitment Solutions, WRS. WRS is a global recruitment consultancy serving the oil and gas, mining, marine, and power industries. And according to Recruiter Magazine, they are the third fastest growing recruitment company in the UK. They've won a long list of awards, including Sunday Times Best Small Company to Work For. They've been placed on Virgin Fast Track list. They've also won the Queen's Award for Enterprise and International Trade, which is pretty cool. They have offices globally, UK, Singapore, Iraq, and Uganda. Revenues of 56 million pounds. Mark himself has over 20 years experience as a recruitment owner and CEO. Mark, thanks for being here. I really am looking forward to this. Hey, very welcome. Happy to join. Fantastic. So 20 years of uh, owning uh, and running recruitment businesses. Um, how did you get involved in the industry in the first place, Mark? Oh, pure, purely by chance. I'm sure a story that many recruiters could uh, can associate with for sure. Um, but yeah, look, I, I was in a non-related sector. Uh, I was at a time in my life and, and the, the world of call centers was very much my background. Um, I had a former associate of mine who'd um, left that sector and spent 12 months, 12 successful months in recruitment. Um, that was in Dublin, in Ireland, and he was relocating due to personal reasons, uh, family member not being well, uh, reached out to me, sold me the dream, for want of a better word, that jumping into partnership. And look, Ma Manchester at the time was a, uh, a very hot region for contact centre, and that was very much going to be our entrance into the market. We were, we were going to be set up through our networks, lots of agreements in principle to provide and supply staff, given we've clearly been on the other side of the fence in terms of recruiting large volumes of people. And uh, I guess that's uh, where our experience had sat. Um, and yeah, I, I took a leap of faith, you know, I just, just moved into a, a new house. Twin daughters were uh, literally uh, three months old when I made the plunge. Oh, so wow. uh, yeah, when I say a leap of faith, it, it absolutely was one. So wait a second, let me just get this straight. So you worked in a con in a call center? That's right. Yeah. So call, okay. call, call center management was... Um, okay. Uh, yeah, that, mm. that was the area I was working. Got it. And then you uh, had an uh, associate friend who was setting up a recruitment business to serve call centers. Correct. Okay, got it. And they said, you should come in and be part of this. That's right. Yeah. And, and right. just just to be clear, it was <clears throat> literally the two of us. So we we entered into it, a uh, limited liability company, 50-50 shareholders, yeah, wow. took 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 a, a bank managed to get a bank loan somehow uh, uh, to fund the to fund the startup and uh, you know that that was it literally day day one away we went very simple infrastructure and uh, a telephone. Wow! So what? That's pretty um, bold to because you had zero recruitment experience and your your partner only had twelve months experience. So, like, uh, but you thought. Yeah, you know, how hard it going to be? We'll just um, we can do this, and we've got the industry background. So, 
Good on you. That's um, that's yeah. a courageous, especially with like young twins at home. What did your partner think of this venture? Oh, she thought I was nuts, but you know, we, <laughs> we'd we'd done the usual thing, setting up your you sort of model out your numbers. What could it look like? And you know, you you always start off with something that uh, you know, in the cold light of day, yeah, w- was unrealistic given all the things that you'd mentioned and uh, the lack of experience and otherwise. Um, but hey, you know, you 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 kind of only think the glass is half full when you're entering into those uh, types of decisions, and yeah, it really really was a leap of faith. And and how how did it go? Yeah, well, if if I uh, share with you that this was September the first, two thousand and one. Uh, oh. Call centers, very much travel related. That was uh, the marketplace that um, was the core of the population in Manchester for call centers. And uh, lo and behold, 10 days later, September the 11th happened, uh, which I do remember very, very well watching it on the television in our very small serviced office in Altrincham. And um, yeah, needless to say, yeah, the, the business plan was ripped up 11 days in and we we were already in, oh my God, state as to what the hell are we going to do? That's so interesting. We, you and I, Mark, started on, are in business on the exact same day. Wow. Um, I started this business, the recruitment coach business in 2000, September 1st, 2001. And I had the same, like that the whole world changed on September 11th. I remember seeing it on the te- television and it just completely seemed unreal and sort of like, yeah. And and so how did you, how did things progress from there? Yeah, so we uh, shift tax into um, a focus into generic sales. Um, that for me, given the le- level of experience that I had was uh, incredibly difficult. If you can think of filters that you're looking for, um, yeah, you know, it, it was very obvious very, very quickly that we needed to determine a niche. Um, and, you know, people say you create your own look, but by default or design, we stumbled across uh, the world of finance, in particular within the mortgage marketplace. Uh, there was changes in regulation and requirements um, uh, from a compliance perspective that they'd introduced um, a qualification that was called CBAP, so Certificate in Mortgage Advice and Practice. And firms were very much giving mandates out to recruiters that they wanted to see CVs and resumes of candidates who had a, a CBAP 1 qualification and or the equivalent, which was a financial planning certificate level one. So that became uh, just a great filter because the only people we were searching for and or were keen to talk to were individuals who met that criteria. So it really did hone in and gave us an opportunity to really target our searches and identify people that um, you know we could ultimately place and introduce with um, introduce to our client base. Fantastic, and uh, I, I'm guessing that worked better. How long did you do that for? Yeah, so that business um, mm. under the guise of KCMB, which was no more uh, innovative than the two initials of the two founders. MB uh, Mark Brown? That's the one. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so that business ran for seven years, right up till um, 
right up till 2008 is pro- probably the best uh, turning out of 27 into 2008. Um, we built a nice lifestyle business, as I would introduce it, exclusive, almost exclusively perm, um, very much um, niched further down into the subprime world that was going through a, a real explosion during that uh, that time. So our clients would have been the Merrill Lynch, the Morgan Stanley, the Bear Stearns, obviously their vehicle, branded vehicles in the UK mortgage market. Um, and yeah, as I say, we, we, we had a very uh, good business, very, very niche, dominant within our market space. Um, very few competitors that were solely that. A lot of the the, the bigger players uh, would have a, uh, I guess, a sector or a division that would focus on that. But we were probably one of uh, a handful of standalone niche businesses focused exclusively on this sector. And yeah, up, up to 2008, fabulous. In fact, I would even say Q4 2007, uh, we saw the GFC and the the financial crisis coming, I wouldn't say before anybody else, but we certainly knew about it before a lot of people because it wasn't in the mainstream till we turned into to, to Q1, Q2 2008. Uh, and we had, uh, for a business of our size, £100,000 worth of fee income taken off our order book that was due to start November uh, by virtue that uh, literally the, these companies are, are left the lights on, left the doors open, but they'd run for the hills. You know, we, we knew there was a problem. We really knew there was going to be uh, a challenge to our niche. Absolutely. Like you were in probably the most affected area, which was property, mortgages, and everything else. Crazy. Can I just, before we dive into, you seem to have a career of surviving and thriving and downturns or, you know, emerging and, and uh, building successful businesses. Um um, correct me if I'm wrong, because I, uh, I cut my teeth recruiting kind of contributor level sales, you know, junior and mid-level sales people uh, as well. And it seems that uh, mortgage kind of advisors and financial planners, these are roles with low base salaries, which means, you know, your fee isn't that high, which means it's uh, it's quite a grind to kind of like get the volume to to do your numbers. Is that, yeah, is that, that the case or am I misunderstanding? No, certainly where we started, and you're right, mortgage mm. advisors, uh, they are commission laden, so um, a commission incentivized, mm-hmm. so base salaries that we did our income off was, um, yeah, made, meant that we were deal makers rather than, you know, sort of headhunters. We'd be, you know, we'd be doing 15, 20 deals every single month. You know, average fee values would have been two and a half to three K. Um, as the business developed and became more recognized in the niche. So that would have been sort of let's say two thousand and one through to two thousand and three. Mm-hmm. Um but we certainly moved into a full spectrum uh, supply right across the remit of uh, the mortgage world. So it would have moved us into underwriting, business development, um, processing, the executive teams and the management teams that would sit within that. So we we had a, yeah, we we enhanced the fee opportunity um, over the course of time in that space. Fantastic. All right. Now that makes total sense. So then what happened after the crisis in 2008 um did you guys carry on trading or like how does wrs fit into the picture yeah so this was um 
I guess at a time, Q1 2008, and already the wheels were starting to spin. Listen, we were very fortunate. My, my dad was uh, an official receiver, so he dealt with bankruptcies and insolvencies. And, you know, his piece of advice to me was cash is king and always will be. Uh, and I guess because of that, uh, as much as I say it was a lifestyle business, we made sure that the business was well capitalized in terms of working capital. It wasn't a. Uh, you know, strip as much cash out as we possibly can. There were there was reserves in there that meant we had some breathing space to to plan. And it was April two thousand and eight. Um, and you know, we we kept going. There's always when the world starts to crash that there's um, an element of denial that this can't be happening. The world that we know can't suddenly be disappearing. Um, so we we diversified slightly into more of the financial planning world. We didn't have candidates. We didn't have um, particularly clients in that space. It became more mainstream banking and IFAs rather than the mortgage world that we were dealing with. Um, and it was tough, but we made, we made income that meant we were just about washing our face and not eating into the cash reserves. Um, but it was April of 2008 that I met my now co-founder and business partner, a chap called Francis Dunleavy. Um, he was exiting his uh, former position um, where he had had some exposure of um, international trade, for, for want of a better word. Construction was really the, the marketplace that they operated in, but they'd seen an opportunity in the likes of your, your Middle East, particularly in Dubai, further afield as well, but, but Dubai being a, a, a predominant feature of, uh, I guess, where his experience had been. You know, good fees, very, very busy. It was an expat marketplace at the time. They needed the skills and the, the, the demand was certainly there. So uh, we had a number of meetings, lots of conversations over the course of a, of a two, three month period. And uh, we, we took the decision that we were going to set up worldwide recruitment solutions, uh, i.e. WRS. And the focus would be ultimately international and emerging marketplaces. That's where we saw the opportunity. We knew absolutely the UK and certainly Europe did not need another recruiter knocking on its door when it's uh, batting down the hatches time. And it was a very, very difficult time. Um, and that was it. So we'd, and, and Fran's background again, just to bring a bit of a, a sort of color to what he bought to the party for me was uh, Fran is, had taken a business from five individuals, a failing business at the time in the IT space. And over the course of a six, seven year period of time, had grown that to a hundred heads, very, very profitable, uh, net fee income levels, just shy of sort of 10 million pounds. So yeah, I knew he had the track record of doing that. Um, I think by his own admission, you know, running businesses from a, a sort of CEO and the financial and operational perspective, not necessarily his bag, but that's what I could bring to the party. You know, Fran was brilliant with the people, brilliant at uh, bringing in, training, motivating, exciting a workforce, lighting them up for, for, for them to do what they do and do it in an environment that is respectful and ultimately pe people want to work. Um, so to that... Yeah, so WRS commenced trading, uh, there's a lot of September the 1st here, but September the 1st, 2008, and that was with uh, five, a team of five individuals, recruiters, so myself and Fran doing the role that we did, um, and five recruiters. And, um, you know, we got those guys, uh, again, 
sold the dream about where we wanted to take the business because day one was very much about building shareholder value with a with an exit very much on our minds um and that i guess was the step change for me having come out of a lifestyle business into uh you know i guess something with uh a bit more um a bit more of a, a, a game and an objective and an end game that's uh, at the end of it amazing so exactly eight years after you founded the first business that's funny so before before we dive into that story, which is what we're going to spend the majority of the time on, because you've built an extraordinary business and, um, you know, I'm sure there's lots of challenges that you had to overcome in the process. Um, I wanted just to make sure people had recognized that golden nugget, nugget of information that you shared earlier, which was keeping cash reserves, not stripping out all the profit. And that meant you, you know, could weather the storm in 2008 and um it's t- it took me a long long time to figure that one out mark i like so many years where i would spend you know the vat uh you know or the uh and i bill before and then it comes due on a quarterly basis and it's oh shit yeah. uh where am i going to get the money from and so my accountant recommended a book called profit first by mike Michael, uh, I don't know if I'm going to say his last name correctly, Mike, Michael Lewitz or something like that. Anyway, if people search for profit first, but the idea was you set up different bank accounts for your, you know, tax and your payroll and, you know, all this, but also that you identify the percentage that you want to have left as profit at the end of the year. And instead of, you know, the profit is whatever's left over at the end of the trading year, you actually set that aside as you go along and into a separate account so that you definitely don't spend that money and you do have a profit at the end. But that takes real discipline. How did, like, what systems did you have in place to make sure that you didn't just, you know, take dividends and, you know, for the full uh, full amount of the operating profit? Yeah. Well, when you you talk <clears throat> about systems back then, Mark, the, there wasn't any systems. I mean, the, re- okay. the reality was um, yeah, th- this was a decision that I'd taken on the back of good advice. And, you know, I think the advice I was given, aside from Cash is King, is make sure you've always got a minimum of six and ideally nine months worth of working capital, business as usual working capital that you can keep the lights on. And if if there was a, a ratio that you were, you know, sort of looking at, that was the ratio that I was given. So that was very much the um, uh, the target of the business. We did have more than that in. And uh, again, that probably supports the fact it was that lifestyle element and actually, okay, the cash was in the business bank, um, largely on the basis that um, <laughs> it wasn't needed in a social context, ultimately. Fantastic. Great. That's uh, such a uh, fantastic discipline to have that six to 12 months um, operating capital in, in reserve. I did a poll on LinkedIn recently to find out what fee percentage recruiters charge. And it confirmed what I'd learned from speaking with so many recruiters every day. The majority of recruiters are undervaluing their service and cutting their fees to become more competitive. Listen, if you want to protect your cash flow and build reserves to protect your business against whatever might happen in the future, you need to be earning more for each placement, not less. The challenge, of course, is how to increase your fees and still be competitive. 
iIntro has helped hundreds of recruiters to make small but critical adjustments to the way they pitch and win business so they can win more clients who are also willing to pay higher fees. For example, one of their clients typically earned 5,000 pounds per placement. But just a few weeks after working with iIntro, she won a new piece of business on a retainer. So in other words, she got a deposit and her fee was an incredible 20,000 pounds, four times her average. If you'd like to see how iIntro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained and book a free consultation. There's no obligation. And if you mention that you're a listener of the Resilient Recruiter podcast, iIntro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount off any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. September 1st, 2008, you um, have this vision of creating a global recruitment business. Um, now, did you, you know, focus on on uh, growing and emerging markets? Um, and was was the energy sector the kind of vertical that you were going after or how did it evolve? Yeah, so we, we started with two sectors. I could almost say there's actually three and it, it doesn't necessarily follow mm-hmm. a common theme. Um, mm-hmm. We identified that uh, South Africa was, was a busy market. The RAND and the exchange rate was in our favor at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, if I, if I said it's uh, uh, gone uh, double in the other way. Um, so that, that was a factor for us. And yeah, oil and gas was certainly a marketplace and so was construction. Now, construction for us uh, turned into a, a bit of a red herring nine months in. Um, largely on the back that uh, Dubai was facing significant challenges at uh, at the time uh, caused by uh, the GFC. And uh, we slowly scaled that back down. We started with, again, five people. So each individual had their own specific discipline in a specific sector with a specific geographical focus. And it was, it was no more complex than that. All right, awesome. And by the way, GFC, Global Financial Crisis, not not everyone uses that term, so I thought I would just uh, clarify that. Um, So did you start in day one with five people or you you built? Okay, awesome. So, um, and what was your vision going in? Like, was it intention to really scale, make a scalable business from the beginning or? Yeah, we we certainly had the appetite to it. It was going to be organic growth. So uh, the speed of scale and growth was going to be determined by our success. Um, And year one was, and the vision, sorry to go back to the vision, was um, to grow headcount. So we were very much Mm -hmm. thinking about headcount, 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 because headcount would have a a, a net fee income number that we would expect over a particular period of time. And that's how we built the model. And we, we had eyes on uh, 100 individuals that would drive the appropriate net fee income on a monthly basis that would deliver as an annual output of X. Uh, and as I say, it was it was f- very, very simplistic, Mark. Well, it's, um, it's simple, but it's effective at the same time. So um, I want to ask you about this, actually, since you brought up, because first of all, how did you arrive at a 100-person business? 
Oh, that was uh, that was our stretch ambitious goal. You know, when you okay. st- when you start day one with a, I guess a, a working capital <laughs> fund that we had available to us um, to go from five to a hundred people. You know, that that felt like almost a, a five year plan in itself. Um, we did know in terms of markets and geographies and how we were going to break each of those particular silo sectors down. Mm-hmm. And again, relatively simple by discipline, by geography, into contract, into perm. That would be how we'd split and break the markets down. And we could see, you know, if you think of the global marketplace, you know, getting to 100 heads in terms of your market map that you create. Um, probably is only dealing with six or seven countries, if I'm being uh, perfectly honest. Obviously, the states being a part of that, and uh, you know, some of those, uh, some of those bit bigger terrains where oil and grass activity um, w- was taking place. So that that was how we set the business up. That was the vision that we had, um, and as I say, pinning that 120k per month. Uh, per consultant, you could see the net fee income number that we were we were driving towards. Fantastic, amazing. So, um, like, what was the kind of roadmap from there, or the key milestones between you know twenty uh, two thousand and eight, and then where we are today to two thousand twenty two? Um, I imagine it wasn't straightforward. What were like the if you look back at like the defining moments in in that process what what would you say were the key ones yeah the the first key moment would have been 2011 when we were successfully accepted onto a global framework with one of the major oil and gas operators um that was headed up by um an individual who's still with me and now a, a valued member of my uh senior management team um and that gave us the opportunity and um, such was our success within that opportunity. And this was placing drilling personnel at the time who were in high, high, high demand in the oil and gas sector. Uh, you know, unbelievable day rates, two, two and a half thousand dollars a day. These guys were getting paid. Um, yeah, we were obviously on a margin play, but we we effectively grew that account to a level that it really did, uh, did become a, a, a bit of a cash cow for the business to allow us to reinvest. Um, and and that situation or that contract, if you like, uh, really fueled a lot of the investments and decisions that we made for, um, for a four or five year period, right through until uh, sort of end of 2014, when we experienced uh, the oil crash, which took us back into uh, <laughs> back into uh not quite gfc spaces it wasn't uh, it wasn't quite that bad but it was uh yeah it, it bought a headwind that um you know we should have known about you know, it's a cyclic world that we live in it's a it's a commoditized industry um but as i say our, our planning and thinking entering into 2014 was was certainly not that this is all going to uh you know, heading to uh, effectively a, a sector and industry recession uh, when we turn out the year. Amazing. So 2013, you won this framework agreement, which allowed you to um, have, you know, a lot of high value contractors working and that gives you the ability to plan and to to, to grow. How many, what was the size of the business in terms of headcount at that stage? 
Yeah, so two. It was actually two eleven when we uh, we won that sorry. contract. Yeah, it, it would have monetized and <clears throat> built up over the course of that two year period. Headcount at that time would have been about thirty. Okay, wow. Uh, so you went from five people to thirty within a couple of years, two three years. We did. Yeah. We All right. Did. So look, that in itself is very, very challenging. Um, wh what advice would you have for, say, a, a, a business owner who's at the stage you were when you started, they've maybe got a handful of people, it's a small team, five, six people, and they have in their sights, same as you, like they want to scale, they want to grow, but like the next step for them is, well, let's get to 30 people. Um, what was the most challenging aspect of, uh, about that? Uh, well, we were, I'd say we were fortunate, Mark. I mean, I guess, I guess we made our own luck. We we actually started, and I guess this is this is the critical, um, I guess the critical element that allowed us to scale at the pace that we did in that we had our four heads of our silo or vertical sectors or vertical marketplaces because the five that we started with, that was always the remit for those guys, that they would be, you know, in almost that Jack and the Beanstalk type effect. They'd be billing billing consultants, then billing managers, then there'd be, you know, team leaders, and then there'd be the divisional managers. And literally the headcount came underneath them. So we had the uh, the ability through the organizational structure to be able to um bring individuals in who would have that line manager so if you sort of sat there with five people today you know your biggest challenge is always going to be who's going to be respond you know if we were a rookie recruitment business that that was the world that we lived in so we always recruited trainees um we didn't go out to the recruitment market on the basis that uh we wanted a certain DNA, it's enthusiasm, it's attitude, it's all those key traits that you're looking for in a recruiter. Uh, we had our own way of doing it. We created a, a training platform, which I have to say at that particular time was delivered almost exclusively by Fran. Um, but we had confidence in our ability to give people and train people the skills to do the job and be, be recruiters. And that time to competence, okay, it may have been naught to six months. But what we actually found is that our retention um, and churn of individuals leaving the business was, um, yeah, I think at one point around that time, Mark, we, we had 99 plus 90% retention for, for staff. Wow. That's it's incredible. Cause I would say, you know, normal would be you get, you, if you can keep one out of three, then you're doing pretty, pretty well. Some companies are obviously a lot worse than that, and some would be slightly better. But to get ninety percent retention, that's maybe let's put a pin in that because there's that you must be doing something special there to to get that. Um, to, there was another question though that came up for me when you were talking about have you had these five original key team members and they grew into bigger roles, and and so you're able to build teams underneath them. Had you recruited people who you saw had leadership potential? Like, was that in in, in the plan from the beginning? Yeah, it, it certainly was. And it, again, um, you know, if you ask me the question, are all those five people have they seen the journey through to date? Uh, we've got only one of those individuals left. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, that can be a double-edged sword. Certainly at the time, they had the skill set to mentor, to train, to nurture. Um, 
individuals and to take them through that you know sort of zero knowledge through to passing probation and actually starting to get a return on investment in that second half of the year they absolutely had the skills for that uh, and were very very competent at it um and that's again what allowed us to go go from the 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 five to 30 as i say the the other edge of that sword you know we can talk about the learning always uh, uh is retained about what would we have ultimately done differently you know i think it's about taking people on the learning journey which you know we we'd have to put our hands in the air mark and say you know did we give them the absolute runway for their skills to grow um into the next phase of management and the next phase of leadership uh, and so on and so forth you know we, we'd probably have to look at that and say the support levels weren't necessarily as robust as they, they needed to be to take them through that next phase from you know divisional manager divisional leaders um you know right through to as i say the, ne the next level for those guys Mm, interesting. Good self-assessment there and, and analyzing what, you know, what's going well, what can we do better? What changes did you subsequently make in order to address that? Yeah, so we bought, uh, well, there was two things we did. We recruited uh, our first mm. learning and development um, manager or head of, for want of a better mm. word, and it was their uh, responsibility to own the whole L&D um, framework for us, which included Yes, the recruitment side of it, but very much then about managers and taking them through from that management through to sort of executive or junior board level uh, would be probably the best way to, to prescribe it. And also uh, to dovetail that with some external learnings and make sure that we're bringing in you know, the knowledge gaps that we don't necessarily have internally, that we are looking to the outside world to, to bring uh, the appropriate skills and training in uh, into the business. Fantastic. That's that's awesome. So uh, about the retention then, how, why do you think your retention was so good? Um, I think I think one portion of it can absolutely be related to um, the fact that we took graduates, we took individuals who'd never done recruitment and we'd taken them on the journey, we'd invested in them. I guess we delivered on everything that we said from day one. Um, so we were true to our, and we always approach any recruitment as 50-50. So 50% of the ownership sits with the uh, employer, employee and absolutely 50% sits with, sits with WRS. Um, and their 50% is attitude, enthusiasm, commitment, the want to learn, be the sponge, you know, get on that upward trajectory through, uh, through your learning and through your performance and your outputs. Um, yeah, and I tend to find if we get that 50-50 contribution and both parties are doing uh, what we've agreed to and set out as the charter from day one, you have a happy marriage. And, um, <laughs> you know, we, we, were, we, we, we were good at that. We were, we were true to our word. Um, yeah, we, we had a respectful environment. We did empower the guys. You know, they had a very clear career path. There was no glass ceiling. You know, we were going for the globe and we were, you know, the, the market opportunity for us was endless. And um, as I say, working with them and making sure the communication is right, that we are, you know, because things change for individuals and what may have been, you know, fit for them two or three years ago, you know, whether they've had kids, whether they're in a relationship now that they weren't, you know, then the, the needs and what they want out of it uh, do change and keeping a finger on the pulse as to, 
you know, what those changes are uh, and making sure that we're keeping them on track um, and we're on track ultimately and they're keeping us on track. Um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely critical. Mm. Um, but we did find um, that our commitment to the guys and the, the doing what we said um, very much bred a, a loyalty factor that, um, yeah, it, it's, well, I say it's immeasurable, it delivered us 90% retention. That's incredible. So, Mark, um, what was the, you said, you talked about communication and about being aware of the needs, the changing needs of your team members and what was most important to them, what was, what their motivators were, and then, you know, um, fine tuning their goals and plans accordingly. What was the mechanism for, achieving that level of insight into each individual in the team and making sure that that conversation was, was happening. Yeah. Well, I guess this is as your business transitions from being you know, a small, a small business where, uh, perhaps your, your infrastructure, your processes and your procedures, um, don't support, uh, volumes of heads it's fit for purpose when it's you know up to 30 but as you as you start to make that step uh, step change into the the wider numbers you know systems procedures uh, processes setting out those management frameworks be it performance management and or to your point uh, making sure those touch points are there so it'd be weekly one-to-ones it would be your team meetings um, and it would be those formal um, platforms that um, you know our, our consultants and employees would um, you know have uh, have that time with the appropriate line manager to to be able to communicate you know and it, it was very much approached as two way communication and that that's always been uh, you know that classic open door policy if you like uh, Mark is something that we've we've always always promoted beautiful I love it all right so then you had. Uh wobble the oil crash so what what happened then uh that was a case of diversification uh again having the learn of 2007 uh not so much fresh in the mind but you don't forget those uh, you certainly don't forget those moments um it it was to move and move quickly um not sit in uh you know that's uh disbelieving moments where you want to bury your head in the sand. Uh, it, it, it was happening. There was going to be challenges. There needed to be diversification. We need to, to redeploy uh, headcount, which again brought its challenges because, uh, you know, experienced recruiters in a particular sector who are experts in that sector, there's, there's a lot of resistance to moving into sort of fresh markets and everything that that means to them uh, and the desk. Um, but they were the de decisions that had to be made. So it was, it was diversification and it was cutting the cloth accordingly in terms of redeployment of headcount. Great. No, it makes total sense. I think you, you, Absolutely right. In terms of like reacting quickly, um, that's what I did not do in the 2008 crash, which then when COVID came around and had been through that before, I I knew I, I, I didn't panic or bury my head in the sand like I did the, the first time. Uh, I knew I had to like 
you know, pivot to use an over overused word and change the way we were working and our marketing and our how we were packaging, you know, and delivering our services and everything. So whereas the first time it was you mentioned the denial, it was definitely there was almost a grieving process in 2008, which was like, you know, <laughs> denial, you know, anger, you know, all those uh, emotions before far too late, you know, actually taking positive action to um to 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 make something happen. So that was my learn and 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 therefore the the pandemic was much less of a of an impact. Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I want to encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. So for you guys, you had to diversify get people working in different markets and uh, how did things progress from there? Yeah, good. And the, the diversification markets was was certainly one of those, but also uh, it, it was looking at the service proposition. So again, that step away from, um, I, I guess, you know, that body shopping, commoditized recruitment of just, just placing bodies. It was really to look at how we could start to add value and mm-hmm. capture um, uh, more robust business over and above having to, you know, continually be on on the hamster wheel. So, for us in two fifteen, um, that looked like developing a, a managed service proposition in one of mm-hmm. our uh, vertical sectors, uh, which was very much the off- offshore space, which um, supports ship owners effectively. And managed services to us at that time meant that rather than placing ad hoc work, um, i.e. individuals to work on vessels, we were actually successful um, in pitching through a tender process for um, the, there was actually three vessels at the time, but it was a, it was a three-year contract that um, had a total of 250 heads. As a, as a headcount. So that became a residual uh, income play for us. Now it meant the service prop had to change completely because we were now responsible for, for immigration, for global mobility. So when we place an individual onto a project anywhere in the world, we were then responsible for the compliant onboarding, certification checks, so on and so forth, um, the mobilization and the demobilization. And 
um, ensuring as well that we had the appropriate insurances that provided the uh, the protection for both the contractor and ultimately the comfort to the client that if anything did go wrong, um, that we were able to repatriate those individuals back to the designated place, whether that be home or, or the nearest shoreline or whatever it may be. So it was understanding the requirements within that tender and the contract um, we knew that we could deliver on it from a personnel perspective, but it meant that we had to bolt on uh, two or three additional steps within the uh, full service offering to be able to present that as a as what we term as a managed a managed service. Very interesting. Um, that's so cool. So actually, I've had a guest on the podcast before, Mark, called Lisa Dixon, and she. Uh, specialized in helping recruitment uh, consultancies to design, develop, sell, and deliver either an RPO and or an MSP product and to have more solutions to offer to clients rather than just this transactional, you give us a job, we fill the job kind of thing. Uh, but you were early quite early to that um so this is what 2015 did you say or yeah so this was this was 2015 um again it would have been the back end of 2015 that we were awarded the tender um but it had been kicked around the management team at that time uh which had evolved to be uh, a recognized board we brought on a non-executive director at this point headcount turning out of 14 into 15 was circa 120 recruiters wow um and yeah we we knew that um not just brought on by the oil crash but it, it was a uh, it was certainly a yeah one of those bolt upright moments when you know, what value were WRS really adding to, to clients? And it was at that point, you know, we knew that transition from what WRS was as a service prop um, to where we ultimately wanted to, to get it, what was uh, needed and what was desired by the clients in the marketplace, what clients were, were crying out for really was this, um, I think to your point, that value added um supplier rather than just that that commoditized recruitment business so we we knew what we wanted to do it was then about planning and putting the appropriate um steps and actions in place so that we uh, we delivered that and we we got there as i say back end of 215 and that gave us then sort of the confidence uh, and the contract and the the uh, the proof of concept from our perspective uh, mm -hmm. really to grow develop that and uh, take it to market Amazing. So um, looking back from the point today, you have uh, offices in multiple countries, 56 million pounds in uh, revenue and uh, have won like best place to work, version fast track, Queen's Award for Enterprise. Um, apart from the things you've already mentioned, were there any other kind of significant challenges that you had to address in order to get to where you are now uh making sure the infrastructure was was fit for uh, fit for scale um mm -hmm. again yeah I, sp I suppose our business at that time we yeah, we had one recruitment system that was pinned to a, a server here at the uk hq where most of the critical mass was suddenly you start to grow offices overseas and all of a sudden yeah the user experience becomes very very 
challenging for these individuals. Technology was moving at uh, you know a rapid rate, and that has increased significantly naturally during you know COVID and the whole digitization program and digital transformation. Um, so yeah, we we we've gone through that journey, and we we've gone through it relatively. Uh, recently, uh, as recent as sort of 2020 turning into 21. Um, but it's making sure from being a one office location, if you're going to be multiple locations across multiple geographies, you've got to make sure that the infrastructure is fit for purpose uh, mm. and, and it's fit for scale. Because um, otherwise... Can you it's- elaborate on that then, Mark? When you say infrastructure, you mentioned obviously the software platform, but what are the other elements that you had to change or, or add? Um well, we have created um, quite a unique um, tech stack now, whereby the uh, the objective was always about um, if we win more work. Caveat the fact it's um, you know you may need more recruiters because it's you know there's a uh, there's an equation and formula X recruiters can, can deliver X output, um, but actually in uh, yeah, some of the contract space that we work with, we're, we're very much a vehicle for clients to enter geographies. So they won't mm-hmm. want to be the employer effectively. Uh, they've got no particular designs on setting up locations and going through the whole company formation piece. So they'll turn to uh, businesses such as WRS who can effectively become the outsource partner to deliver and be that vehicle for them to conduct activities uh, in country. So it was about building the appropriate partner network, about driving automation into the business, mm-hmm. about uh, and that automation is about business process improvement essentially. So whereas historically we we'd have been thinking about um, human capital to do the heavy lifting and do a lot of the administration work, um, we've very much got ourselves to a position now where actually a lot of those processes and, and procedures. Uh, are automated and therefore we don't need to be thinking about human capital unless it is actual increased recruitment work or increased recruitment assignments for a project that we uh, that we need to deliver on. And I would suggest the outcome of that has been an estimate about thir- 35% of our manual um, administrative tasks have now been automated and wow. the seamless flow from system through the integration from front office, middle office to back office has uh, driven significant efficiency gains. Amazing. So can you give me an example of what sort of thing you would have automated that in the past would have been done manually? Yeah, sure. So if you could imagine, um, let, let's take a placement of a contractor. Mm-hmm. So a contractor is placed, you need to send out a contract. Uh, That's usually to be printed out, scanned onto a PDF document. The PDF document then needs to be emailed. It then comes back to you. You've got to print it out. You've got to double sign it. You've then got to scan it again to send it back to the actual. So there's one process which is now automated through digital signing. It drops straight into the CRM system when it returns in and therefore the manual intervention is minimal. If we then move on to uh, where they're actually out on assignment, our timesheet middle office system is all a digital approval system. So contractor logs in, he'll log his timesheet, the 
client will then be notified. They log in, approve the timesheet hours. That then flows directly into our mid-office pay and bill system, uh, which then flows directly into the um, account system for invoicing so that we don't have any human intervention at all or human requirement through mm. that process. And if you could imagine pre having those systems automated, you'd have been talking potentially about, you know, maybe half an hour to an hour of somebody's time to actually across different departments to actually get to that outcome. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's so cool. I, I, um, I can see why that was a significant. So whose job is that? Like, do you, is there someone internally who drives those process improvements and constantly looks at your systems, your processes, and how we can automate and or, you know, create efficiency, operational efficiency? Yeah, well, we, we don't have that skill set uh, internally. We okay. have um, the think tank, if you like, about what we would love to automate, where we feel mm -hmm. the pain points, where we're getting the bottlenecks. Uh, we engage an external consultant who's, uh, you know, old hat, very experienced. It's uh, uh, a company called uh, Worker. Um, okay. W O R K R, um, and there's a chap there called uh, called Eve. His surname has uh, just uh, left my brain, uh, but yeah, I mean he he was hugely informative. He worked with us on understanding processes, um, how what we wanted to do, what we were doing, what we ultimately wanted to do, what the opportunity was, and he just brought it to life for us. Made the system recommendations. Uh, helped us with the integrations and the Im implementation of it, because uh, again, we we didn't have well, we didn't have the knowledge, and I guess ultimately, Mark, we didn't have the time because yeah. business as usual is still very much going on. So, um, yeah, there was a cost there, but the the actual you know opportunity cost of not doing that would have been would have probably ended up with a system, lots of different systems that don't talk to each other, and we would have been. Yeah, back back to square one with no benefits. So um, yeah, employing that, bringing that external knowledge in through that consultant was um, yeah pe paid for itself in spades. Interesting. Wow, that's so cool. I, I'm really uh, fascinated by that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So why now? Much as we've talked about automation and MSPs and you know all this kind of stuff, ultimately this is still a people-driven business and, you know, you're the people who do the deals and, and generate the, the fee income um, are still at the heart of, you know, running a successful recruiting business. Why do you think you won best, like one of the best Sunday Times, best com small companies to work for? Like, what are the things you've put in place in order to create that environment that you're able to attract, retain, and you know, have people that are highly engaged working at WRS. Yeah, well, I, I think ultimately the, the culture hasn't changed. So processes might have been defined uh, or refined. Uh, processes may have changed. Uh, we're brought ISO in, and that brings certain obligations that we have uh, through the through nine thousand and one. But actually, sitting behind all that, the the management team, um, the learning and development team. And the culture of the business uh, ha has never shifted a dial because, and I refer back to you know respect, a fair environment, uh, an environment where people uh, feel they belong, uh, feel they have a voice, feel they have input, they understand uh, the purpose of the 
the company, the direction of travel, and that's through constant communication, whether it's CEO forums, we have a, a weekly uh, comms every Friday where we talk about you know all the great and good that's happened individually in teams. So, yeah, look, to your point, re- recruitment, whether it's 20 years ago or today, you know, people want to be in a, in a respectful environment where they've got career opportunity and they understand their direction of travel and what uh, contribution that they can make and the pathway to, to advancement, if indeed that, that is what people are looking for. Awesome. You've, you've said this several times, a theme where you've said it's a respectful environment. That's obviously important to you. What does that, what does that mean at WRS? Uh, it means that people, I suppose for us, we, well, it, it, it's a diverse workforce that we have first and foremost. Um, I think respect for me is, is about being fair. It's about agreeing, um, i.e. not being a, a dictatorial business. We may, as a management team, have know budgets to achieve and that that doesn't change um but actually getting the agreement and working with the uh consultants and or any employee who is uh, performing a task be it recruitment related or otherwise that they are um communicated to in a respectful way that isn't yeah, one of do do do. This is about collaboration. It's about a team ethos. You know, I think yeah, we've all come across those recruitment environments that are um, yeah a little bit the other way, shall we say? And um, you know, we're we're very we're very conscious of that. So I think it is um, without getting yeah making it sound like the Waltons. It, it it's a caring you know camaraderie fueled. Um, team focused where everybody uh, who comes into the business you know, genuinely has a desire to want to see the person next to them do well and harnessing that uh, and creating that for me starts with the management team having and treating everybody with respect and you know part of that respect is is being fair Okay, awesome. I love that. Um, you also mentioned these weekly comms where, like, could could you walk me through what's the agenda or what's the format of that meeting? Yeah, sure. So that so that will be uh, myself, and I tend to um, focus on more of the generic business side of things. So communication uh, around. Um, activities or projects it's a general business update if you want to if you want to put it that way uh then the divisional managers uh will each have their own sort of five minutes where they'll talk about what's gone on yeah who've been the top performers who's done well who's gone out of the way and gone the extra mile any feedback that we may have had so it really is news by division and that's what the divisional managers, we have news by HR, and then mine will be uh, more of a generic theme about, about the business as a whole. But it, it's really about just keeping everybody tuned in to what's going on within the WRS environment. Fantastic. Do you know Greg Savage? I don't know him personally. I know of, uh, certainly know of his works from uh, you know some of the podcasts with you guys and you know, articles that Greg releases you know, through any number of platforms. So I, I certainly know of Greg. 
the reason I ask is um, one of I mean, he's got lots of expressions and lots of subjects that he likes to talk about, but one of which I've heard him say is like you cannot over communicate with your team members, and you know people need to understand you know where you're going, what's happening, how they fit into it, and um, you can go the other way and not communicate enough, but you almost cannot over communicate. It sounds like you guys are doing a fantastic job with that. What's um, Where do you go from here? What's uh, on the horizon for WRS? Yeah, so next, um, it, it will be twofold. We're, we're an energies business. Uh, that's what we very much see ourselves as uh, in terms of fr- from here on. And that's, think of anything under that energy umbrella, be it renewables, be it oil and gas. Uh, but for us, it will be about continued uh, expansion through geography. Um, the USA is coming uh, hot onto our radar. We've got uh, an opening planned. Uh, we've chosen our landing point as Florida. Cool. Uh, and the office will open in uh, July or August of this year. Uh, so we're doing a lot of work behind the scenes now to to uh, to get the business ready for that. Uh, we've done. Oh, oh, sorry, should I say Fran, my business partner's done a great piece of work uh, within our Singapore office where he's been on secondment for the last three years, uh, very much working with uh, his succession plan. Uh, so an indiv- a WRS individual who will take over the reins of, uh, of Team Singapore and uh, the Singapore budget. And uh, Fran, as I mentioned before, no better person at moving into a a startup scenario and taking that from 0 to 100 in terms of headcount. And that is very much uh, the the plans that we've got over the next three to five in the States. Amazing. All right. Well, uh, I wish you every success with that, Mark. It sounds super exciting. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your journey and and the things you've learned along the way. uh, I've really enjoyed that. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I enjoyed it myself. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening. Just before you go, let me ask you one question. Who in your network would make a great guest on the Resilient Recruiter podcast? I'm always on the lookout for interesting people to interview. Recruitment entrepreneurs who embody the ethos of the Resilient Recruiter. If you're a regular listener, you'll know the kind of person I'm looking for. Ordinary men and women who have achieved extraordinary things. Specifically, I'm looking for someone with a great story to tell, someone who's overcome adversity in pursuit of their goals, and who's open to sharing their own mistakes and learning experiences with our listeners. In the words of previous guests, John Coxon and Alex Elliott, I'm looking for someone with humble confidence. They could be a top producing solo or independent recruiter or the owner of a fast growing firm. Maybe that person is you, or maybe it's someone you know. Send me your recommendations, mark at recruitmentcoach.com or feel free to nominate yourself And if you think you meet the criteria I've just outlined, I'd love to hear from you. Once again, it's mark at recruitmentcoach.com. Remember to hit subscribe and I'll see you next time.